Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for Conversations of Consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Let me start out with some thanks to the guest hosts who uh, propped me up all last week when I was with the Good News Marriage Cruise, uh, Corporate Travel and Ave Maria Radio's annual, uh, again, cruise, a lot of teaching, great masses. Uh, We had outstanding speakers, uh, Father Mike Schmitz, Scott and Kimberly Hahn, uh, you know, Dr. Ray was there, Teresa Tamio was there with Deacon Dom, myself and my wife Sally also uh, spoke about marriage as a journey to holiness. It was a great time, and I just wanted to thank my host who sat in, Gary Mashuda, who has grown into an outstanding apologist. I've known Gary for uh, 25 years at least. And should say he's an outstanding father as well. Pete Barak, uh, who I watched grow up with my son James, uh, and Pete now is with Renewal Ministries, an outstanding evangelist and uh, broadcaster. Uh, again, his dad was a great personal evangelist. And Pat Odie Murray was with us, new new voice for us here, and it was spectacular. So I hope Pat will be able to join us and sit in this seat in the future. Of course, our dear friend Matthew Bunsen and uh, Marcus Peter, uh, who's a colleague and also a friend here at Ave Maria Radio, thank you uh, for taking time to fill in for me while I was gone. And congratulations should go out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family. Siouxland Catholic Radio, 88.1 FM, serving Sioux City in Storm Lake, Iowa, is celebrating 16 years with us this week. So congratulations to Anne, Lisa, the great team they've put together at Siouxland Catholic Radio. This is from all your friends at EWTN. Well, let me tell you where we're going in this hour. How do American universities teach American history? Uh, Because a people have to understand who they are, and who they are has a lot to do with where they've been. And so history is so important. That's one reason we do historical topics on this program. Uh, We think that history is largely forgotten in many circles, especially in the area of civics. So Donald Critchlow... Uh, from the Center for American Institutions at Arizona State is joining me. And then we pick up on a topic I began last hour. That topic is papal infallibility on this feast day of Blessed Pius IX. Dr. Matthew Levering with us, taking a look at this important dogma. But first, the headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, February 7th. It's the Feast of Pius IX. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing love and care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley lost the Nevada Republican presidential primary yesterday, despite the fact Donald Trump was not on the ballot 
Voters opted to choose none of these candidates. A conflict of rules resulted in Trump not being on the ballot. Haley has vowed to stay in the race against Trump, even if the polls have her trailing by double digits. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer plans to drop the border provisions and force a vote only on the aid for Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan from a bipartisan border deal expected to be voted down shortly. Senate Republicans are expected to shoot down a $118 billion border security and foreign aid package. They claim the bill doesn't go far enough in stopping the flow of illegal immigrants. Darius Rucker is paying tribute to the late country music legend Toby Keith. The Hootie and the Blowfish singer took to the historic Grand Ole Opera stage on Tuesday night in Nashville and covered God Lover, a hit single from Keith's 2008 album, That Don't Make Me a Bad Guy. A video of Rucker delivering his rendition of Keith's anthem appeared on the opera's Instagram story on Tuesday evening, followed by Rucker's performance of Wagon Wheel. Keith's family said he passed peacefully, surrounded by his family, following a year-long battle with stomach cancer. The country legend was 62. And Tiger Woods is announcing his return to golf. Woods committed to playing in the Genesis Invitational next week near Los Angeles. On Tuesday, the golf legend teased an announcement that will happen on the 12th of this month, but there's no official word yet on what that will be. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Understanding America's past and the uniqueness of the American experience, uh, our history, is crucial to understanding our future. Unfortunately, most American students seem to lack basic proficiency in understanding uh, their own history. There's a new report from Arizona State's Center for American Institutions that looks very seriously at this problem and quantifies it. Uh, Dr. Donald Critchlow will join us. He's the Katzen Family Professor at Arizona State, where he directs the Center for American Institutions. He's joined us in the past uh, on topics of, of his books, including Intended Consequences, Birth Control, Abortion, the Federal Government in Modern America, and uh, Revolutionary Monsters, Five Men Who Turned Liberation into Tyranny. Dr. Critchlow, a pleasure to have you back with me. Thanks. Well, it's it's all my pleasure uh, uh, to be honored again with with appearing on your show, and I'm a great fan of your uh, program and often listen to it on my way home from uh, work. So thank thank you very much. Well, let's talk about why this is important. Why is civic education so important for our republic? Well, I think, as you uh, said in your introduction, uh, young Americans need to understand the, uh, the, the, not only the travails that we've uh, experienced as a nation uh, in, 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 in fulfilling our uh, vision as a constitutional republic, uh, but it's also important for just understanding uh, their responsibility as uh, citizens when they go to uh, the voting booth. What we're uh, what we found in this uh, year-long uh, study looking at uh, syllabi across the uh, country, what's occurring in introductory courses, is that students are basically being taught a what I would consider a political agenda 
in which America is viewed as having made no progress at all on uh, the advancement of uh, minority groups, especially uh, black civil rights, voting rights, but also uh, but also uh, uh, the advancement of uh, women. And I think what was particularly shocking is not only what this agenda was including, but what was also being excluded, just basic uh, facts or information about uh, the Civil War, World War One, World War II, the Cold War, uh, and all of those basic sub- uh, subjects, topics, that informed uh, citizen needs to, uh, needs to know. Um, is this a result of the faculty themselves, or are they beholden to uh, larger uh, institutions or departments that are offering curricula? Well, I think it's uh, it's uh, faculty uh, themselves that are bringing in a, a political agenda. Okay. We now have in this country 1.5 million uh instructors in higher education. And we know from survey after survey that 70% consider themselves uh, left or left wing. Unfortunately, their politics is being brought into the, uh, to the classroom. So the teaching of American history has become part of a, a political agenda. And my own feeling, and I think most of your listeners would agree with this, that uh, one, one, uh, that one's personal uh, political views shouldn't be uh, introduced into the uh, to the classroom. There should be the pursuit of objectivity, but also uh, a, a, a belief that the one's mission in the classroom is not only to teach basic uh, information, but also to create an informed uh, citizenry that's able to think uh, critically about. Uh, about the past, about America's uh, past, and uh, what its future is going to be. Um, I'm curious, do they, America has had a unique uh, experience, and uh, the role of religion in American history is is quite significant. Do they, uh, do these uh, instructors deal uh, even-handedly with the role of religion in our founding documents, the abolition of slavery, women's suffrage, uh, the civil rights movement? Well, that, it's not uh, what we discovered in, the, in our year-long uh, study in which we uh, looked at 75 uh, syllabi being taught in our universities, private and public, uh, and across the country, is that uh, religion was not even uh, discussed. And if you don't understand uh, the importance of religion, whatever your own uh, religious beliefs are, you cannot understand, as you just said, the abolitionist movement, which was uh, driven by uh, a Christian impulse, women's suffrage, the temperance movement, or Martin Luther King's uh, civil rights uh, movement. Yeah. In fact, uh, Martin Luther, none of these topics were uh, discussed at all in the 75, uh, 75 syllabi that we looked at. And, uh, uh, and I might add to that, in 
that we were able to only only find seventy five uh, syllabi that were uh, that were public. I mean, it's if uh, uh, history departments don't want the public to know what's what's uh, what's wow. being taught to our students. It's amazing to me. So, uh, do these uh, do the curricula that you looked at, the syllabi that you looked at, uh, do they emphasize you know uh, things like white supremacy or diversity or equity? Yeah, of course. There was a great deal of uh, emphasis on equity, uh, how it's not been uh, fulfilled. There was. Uh, absolutely uh, no discussion of of, of markets having uh, brought prosperity to people and opportunities to people. Uh, the Industrial Revolution was taught only in a few uh, courses as basically one of worker oppression. And I think one of the most astounding things we found is that uh, the courses all taught uh, basically no progress has been made and that America, from its very inception, was a was a nation in uh, decline. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that that's uh, so what we're seeing in the classroom in our as we concluded, and the uh, national commission commissioners, uh, uh, Scott Walker, former governor of Wisconsin, Newt Gingrich, and former governor of Oklahoma, concluded that uh, we're seeing uh, propaganda and not uh, education. It's miseducation of our youth. And I think that explains uh, much of the uh, problem that we're, that we're seeing among our youth today, of not, not only not being informed, uh, but also, you know, kind of their left-wing uh, sentiment that's found among large numbers of uh, young voters, especially those going to colleges. You know, I, in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, a great nation did what most great nations don't do. Uh, it basically repented <laughs> of what had been a major theme uh, in the South, the theme of separate but equal. That's something to be celebrated. Uh, I just, I don't, not giving credit where credit is due, uh, it really does uh, irk me. And uh, did they celebrate uh, the America's uh, capacity for change in this way? Well, of course not. In fact, uh, I mean, let's be more precise. Uh, some of the courses, uh, you know, had a theme of uh all of the well, let me backtrack and say that all of the courses had a theme of the oppressed and the oppressor, yeah. and uh, and one of uniformity throughout American uh, history. But we also have uh, professors uh, taking as a theme for their course incarceration. So uh, wow. that is that we're that you know this is the incarcerated uh, minority how they fully developed that in the uh, classroom and their lectures uh, wasn't apparent from the syllabi uh, but but that was the uh, that becomes a theme for a course I mean think about this you're teaching a, a, a second half of American history and it's all about incarceration <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> 
can't make this stuff up. Wrong. I'm in the wrong classroom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, 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 would you say that we're seeing basic ideas of good and evil uh, redefined, so that we've got a struggle between the powerless, those are good, and the powerful, those are bad, and uh, colorblindness with race. Uh, colorblindness is replaced by race obsession. Um, yeah, there was a race uh, there. These uh, syllabies reflect an obsession on uh, on racism uh, and white supremacy, which is often uh, uh, a theme in these courses. But also uh, sexual identity. We were uh, we were actually surprised by how much sexual identity, not not uh, gender, but specifically uh, sexual identity. Uh, was introduced. So we have some of the syllabi had a couple weeks on uh, on sexual identity and the oppression of uh, gays and even talking about uh, transgender. Uh, so you see you see discussions of transgender in the 1920s. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, I mean, so we were uh we were surprised uh, by the uh, the themes, uh, the negative themes that were found in these syllabi. We we and I've been teaching uh, quite a while, so and others that did the research have been as well. And we were surprised. We expected most professors uh, to be pretty lazy and not update their uh, syllabi to talk <laughs> about such identity and and uh, and. and uh, you know, the oppression of, uh, of transgendered people. Yeah. So yeah. anyway. Well, uh, we're out of time, uh, Dr. Critchlow. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you for having me. And, yeah. And God bless you. You Thanks. do good work. Well, thank you. Thank you. We'll talk again, Lord willing. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. There was a big story about this Catholic college saying, oh, we are going to open our doors to anyone who identifies as a woman. So a male student coming in, but if he calls himself a woman, that's fine. This is all about diversity and equality. This is a Catholic women's college. And so, thanks be to God, there was a lot of pushback. And guess what? The school rescinded. How important it is not to give up and to remember that we can and should respectfully, always with love, express our concerns. It doesn't matter. The victory is up to God. But sometimes we do see that success in the victories, as is the case with St. Mary's College, who says now it needs to go back to its roots and get a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Catholic college for women. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. What is the most daunting petition in the Lord's Prayer? The Catholic Catechism says it is when we ask God our Father to forgive our sins as we forgive others, meaning if we do not forgive those who have sinned against us, we don't expect the Father to forgive us. God's outpouring of mercy cannot penetrate our hearts as long as we have not forgiven those who have trespassed against us. This is sobering. The Catechism says there has to be a vital participation coming from the depths of the heart in the holiness and the mercy and the love of God. 
Only the Holy Spirit can make our mind the same as the mind of Jesus Christ, who could forgive even those who crucified him. The heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit can turn injury into compassion, purifying the memory so as to transform the hurt into intercession. Forgiveness bears witness to the world that love is stronger than hate. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christian in College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresta when applying. That's bestweekever.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Today's the feast of uh, Blessed Pius IX, longest serving Pope in church history, and among his many accomplishments was his formalizing the definition of papal infallibility, which was, again was done at uh, First Vatican Council, and uh, which for a long time was simply known as the Vatican Council, because there had been no Vatican II yet. But uh, this is a teaching worth uh, exploring, and also concerns that all of us have about uh, corruption uh, of doctrine and how the Church deals with that uh, over the long haul. With me to help us uh, go through this is Dr. Matthew Levering. He holds the James N. Jr. and Mary D. Perici Chair of Theology at Mundelein Seminary. He's authored many books, including Newman on Doctrinal Corruption, uh, the Abuse of Conscience, A Century of Catholic Moral Theology, and An Introduction to Vatican II as an Ongoing Theological Event. Uh, thank you so much for joining me again, Matthew. It's great to be with you. Uh, it's wonderful to be back. Thank you, Al. Well, let's, uh, let's go to the doctrine of papal infallibility. Um, 
when did this become a concern that required definition? Well, you know, it was um, in the 19th century, of course, there was a tremendous uh, growth in rationalism. And then there was also the whole political situation. So there with the um, development of the Italian states, but then also um, all, all other kinds of problems um, politically. So the I think that, that I think those were the driving factors. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this it had to, so this was a way to clarify uh, the extent of papal authority. That's right, and to and to really in, insist upon the um, the goodness of of the magisterium, yeah. you know, the goodness of the um, the, the papal magisterium, because uh, this was sort of under attack and. And it had been, had been in the 18th century, the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. you know, and certainly in the 19th century as, as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, the idea of infallibility was not alien to the Catholic tradition. It's been with us from the beginning, I assume. Oh, that's that's right, of course, because, um, you know, the the great councils, um, they're, they're just, you know, to to reject the, the teaching of the Church. I mean, it's, it's right there in, in Scripture. Yeah, you know the, yeah. the church is the bulwark, the bulwark of truth. Yeah. So the the um that's that's kind of the root of the root of the thing is um the passing on of the the deposit of faith. Yeah. And the church is um ho- guided by the Holy Spirit is enabled to do that. What was the controversy surrounding papal infallibility at Vatican One? Well, there it was um there was twofold. There were there were some people who really thought it was an inopportune time to to define it and then i mean newman would have been on that side um, mm-hmm. st john henry newman but but then there were there were others who who just simply um took the view that that the patristic evidence the evidence from the first centuries um did not justify um the papacy the, the um you know the bishop of rome um having that kind of special authority. Mm-hmm. They they thought he had they, they thought he had authority, but but not that kind of not not to that degree. Um, would they would how would they have understood the extent of infallibility then? I mean, who would speak infallibly for the church among those who rejected papal infallibility? Well, the, it, would, it did differ, but they um, they would think in terms of the the pope. The pope would be able to to speak for the church, but but not in any not in any fully definitive way. Mm-hmm. And so then you would wait for you would wait for a council, you know, to um, to speak then for the whole church. You would you would call a council, um, and the council it, it wasn't conciliarism exactly, but it was close to it. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. that's what that's what they uh, thought. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, essentially, they they thought that they were not, they were not, they didn't think of themselves as reviving, um, you know, the um, conciliarist movement. But but to some degree, they really were. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they did they did have a, a strong uh, high view of the papacy. The the, the representative of this is Ignaz von Dillinger. Yeah. And he was the German, the great German church historian, who essentially. Um, Thought that that German German historians kind of needed to be in, in charge henceforth because they were the ones who knew the fathers. <laughs> okay. The texts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was a brilliant scholar. Uh, <laughs> no doubt about that. But what 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 was uh, what became of him? 
Well, so he he ended up he ended up um, choosing excommunication. They the um, he, in fact, they tried a number of times, including um, you know Pope Leo the Thirteenth tried to bring him back, but he he refused oh. to reconcile with the church. He just simply refused, and so he um, he was excommunicated after the council in, in um, 1871. And you know Newman had known him and had been in some ways friendly. I mean, he was he was the teacher of, of Lord Acton. Yes, okay. And so, so he was um, an influential figure, uh, well-known all through the continent. He was the kind of guy that, you know, he, at the, at the um, at intellectual conferences, um, including this famous um, Munich Congress in 1864 that the Pope had to respond to with a, with a papal letter, uh, sort of uh, raising some serious concerns. Um, he would get up and speak for four and a half hours, and wow. people were people were literally enthralled. Wow! He was just an amazing public speaker. Mm. What a loss! Um, look, so mm. so now, Pius. Correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm under the impression that Blessed Pius the Ninth defined the dogma of immaculate of the immaculate conception of Mary. Um, without consultation of the bishops, that he did it on the basis of his own authority as pope, is that right? Now you know that's a that's a good question. It's um <clears throat> I think there was a consultation. Um, okay. But of course, of course, it um yeah, that consultation, if you if you look through it, and of course Dollinger did, and then also Newman's old confrere from the Oxford movement, um, Edward Bouvery Pusey, mm-hmm. also <laughs> looked through this and. And essentially, the it was the the Southern European states. A lot of some of this is political. So the Southern European states, um, their bishops were very much for, you know, like Italy or um, the bishops in, in um, Spain, Italy, Spain. Um, these these bishops were very much for. But the German bishops were were tended to be concerned, raise raise concerns, and um, about about the definition, you know, when when they were consulted. Um, mm-hmm. But but in general, though, um, when they actually gave their reports back to the Pope, um, you know, in, in general, it was it was it was uh, clear that that the that the um, that the Church favored this. But the Pope did go ahead and, and define it, of course, on his own authority. Yeah. And yeah. so Dollinger ends up um, rejecting the doc- the doctrine of papal infallibility after he's excommunicated. He he then um, he then goes ahead and re- and rejects. Um, you know, not only papal infallibility, but also Mary's immaculate conception. Yeah. He, he rejects that that as well, as you mm. would expect. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, so, exactly what does the teaching on papal infallibility say? How, how do we define it? Well, you know, it's the, the ex-cathedra, you know, the, 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 the formal, the solemn, um, teaching that the Pope has has the ability to speak, and when he speaks ex, ex cathedra on a on a matter of faith and morals, um, then he he can he teaches um, in a, when he's teaching in a in a universal way, when he's teaching in a solemn way, mm-hmm. um, you know he teaches definitively. Did we see this uh, in the papacy of John Paul II when he talked about uh, the Church not having any authority to? Uh, that that the church had to reserve the ministerial priesthood to males. Well, well, I think I think there um, 
he wasn't, at least according to Cardinal Ratzinger at the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he wasn't using his extraordinary ex-cathedra okay. ability. Instead, he was, he was um, alerting the Church to a, a definition, um, an infallible definition that had been given by the ordinary magisterium. You know, the universal ordinary magisterium is also infallible, which is which is the bishops gathered around the Pope, yes. you know, who have who have taught a constant doctrine, you know, um over over the centuries, a, a constant doctrine that um that then the Pope um essentially Pope John II was articulating that as a as an infallible teaching of the universal ordinary magisterium. Mm-hmm. And he articulates it in a very solemn way, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I you know I read read it through a few times, and I thought it had the elements. I, mean, I certainly defer. Okay. <laughs> I certainly defer to Joseph oh, Ratzinger. Really? So, oh, it's still it's still an infallible teaching. You you see, it says infallible from the from the other direction. Yes, um, yes. You know the yeah the the definition of papal infallibility in Vatican One is really referring um, simply not to the universal ordinary magisterium, but but simply referring to the the. Um, the Pope in his ex cathedra, um, you know, when he speaks in that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there's, some, there's a bit of an irony here, isn't there, that, that as the, the Pope is losing territorial and temporal authority, that exactly. in fact his authority within the Church becomes more intense and extensive. Well, it does, and, and of course the... Um, just as you, as you say, the, the Pope had been able to to do this and had done it in the in the definition of Mary's immaculate conception, but um, but what I what I would say to this is that yeah, this this political context um, is very very significant. This this sense of the loss, the the Pope was essentially under siege, right, and um, the the loss of the papal states and and just the the. Of course, in the 19th century, popes were often going into exile. In fact, Pius the Ninth had himself gone into exile. You know, in the early, um, in the in the it was late 1840s or early 1850s. Wow. I can't I can't remember exactly when, but he he'd gone into exile um, from Rome oh. uh, himself. So so this wow. is a constant a constant theme. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's amazing. Um, we don't we don't have quite that kind of. Uh, open conflict today. Um, again, we are certainly persecuted in countries around the world, but it is, uh, it is interesting that I, I would assume that the reason we don't see, for instance, Pius IX calls himself prisoner of the Vatican. We don't see uh, statements like that now because uh, we're no longer entangled with territorial authority. So we're not a threat in that respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's right. To surrounding mm-hmm. nations. Matthew Holditzer will come back and continue. Talk about uh, John Henry Newman and his, uh, well, really, the centrality of his teaching uh, on truth and his rejection of liberal religion. My guest, Dr. Matthew Levering. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. 
Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically own shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria mutual funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. CMF Curo is a Catholic healthcare ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. This commandment enjoins on us young children not only obedience to their parents and even older children, great honor for them, but also gratitude for all of our elders, teachers, employers, and leaders. It also directs citizens to a proper love of our country. So it's a rich commandment. And it also puts great requirements on those who are in those positions to be worthy of the honor that is due them. This commandment is fundamentally given to us by God because without respect for our elders, there can be no teaching, and we cannot hand on the wisdom of previous generations. This commandment is rich, and it is for us. The fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. You've probably heard Venerable Father Patrick Payton say, the family that prays together stays together. Well, as the director of the Payton Institute, I like to add that the family that plays together also prays together. Family play rituals like family days, game nights, and other similar activities aren't just fun things to do. They're ways Catholic families remind each other to celebrate the life God has given them. Daily play rituals remind families that both in good times and in hard times, God always wants us to look for reasons to rejoice. That's one reason family rituals for playing together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, Visit CatholicCounselors.com. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Matthew Levering. We've been talking about the uh, doctrine of papal infallibility. And again, this is uh, something that 
is crystallized uh, in the uh, 19th century at the First Vatican Council. And uh, it is interesting that the Church is certainly concerned about uh, retaining its place as the uh, pillar and foundation of the truth. And one of the great defenders of the faith in the 19th century, um, at the time of the First Vatican Council, was St. John Henry Newman. And he had a special concern about uh, false religion. And uh, Matthew, what did what did uh, St. John Henry Newman uh, think about the liberal trends within uh, Anglicanism and in other uh, Christian traditions of the period. Well, Newman was um, really extraordinary, and one of the things that he articulates is what he called the dogmatic principle. And essentially, the main point is that if if you have a religion that is not rooted in the ontologically real, that, Mm -hmm. that teaches about teaches about reality, the reality of God, you know, in, in ways that are ontologically true, mm-hmm. then, then such, a, such a religion is a mirage. Yeah. And yeah. so he's, um, he's very concerned, therefore, about, um, you know, religious liberalism's attempt to sort of ground religion in, in human subjectivity rather than in the ontologically real um, in terms of, of God, Jesus Christ, and so on. Yeah. I mean, he gets invoked regularly uh, using the idea of development by those who uh, often seem to want to depart from the tradition of the church. Um, mm-hmm. How did what what was authentic development for uh, Newman? Well, so New- Newman gives principles for authentic development. Um, of course, he's very concerned about private judgment. You know, any any sense that that we um, we define our own religion for ourselves rather than receiving it from the Lord God, from Jesus Christ, and from and through the Church. He's very concerned about private judgment, but he he gives principles for authentic development, and and those principles, um, you know, include um, you know continuity, continuity, um, elements of continuity such as um, preservation or conservation of the past, and and so on. You know, but Newman is is um, a great defender of, of of just the fact that that look you know we you don't just simply have a kind of rupture where where you're um, kind of saying one thing and then you you then turn around and teach the very opposite as if that were development that that for Newman that would be a strong corruption of, mm-hmm. of doctrine. Mm-hmm. Now, when those who are it would seem to me that those who are looking for authentic development, that they would be spending, they would be rather passionate about searching the data of Revelation uh, to make sure that what they're talking about is in continuity uh, with revealed truth. And it's a characteristic uh, historically that those who follow uh, liberal religion and have a false view of development uh, actually remove themselves further and further from uh, divine revelation, and show a diminishing concern uh, for it. Uh, I would be interested in knowing uh, if Newman ever um, spoke such that way. 
Oh, he certainly did. In fact, and that, that's what that's what led to his conversion. You know, he 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 discovered in Anglicanism, um, really, that on issues of church doctrine, these were going to be subjected to, you know, votes of Parliament and um, and su- such like that could be then controlled. That's right. By popular yeah. vote, by popular vote, and and by <laughs> non-Anglicans. <laughs> Wow. And so Newman, Newman, um, therefore, that's that really began to spur his movement toward um, toward the Catholic faith. It, it really did. It's, um, he was profoundly concerned about the problem of um, of doctrinal corruption. Yeah, he, he really was. But he, um, of course, of course, Newman understands that that, that a heresy, um, it, you know, for for a pope to teach a heresy takes takes a bit of work. In other words, um, <laughs> not every not every error, you know, popes popes can. You know, make an error of this kind or that kind, but but that's that's not yet a heresy, right? Right. You know, um, yeah, yeah. So the papacy is, by its nature, a conservative position. Uh, it, it's bound by uh, two thousand years of of tradition that it has to deal mm-hmm. with. Um, I am curious. Your your book on uh, Newman on doctrinal, doctrinal corruption. Uh, looks at uh, five figures, important figures, from the 19th century, and how um, John Henry Newman uh, engaged their thought. I have never heard very much about his relationship with his younger brother, Francis. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, how, how did doctrinal corruption uh, play into his relationship with his younger brother? Well, Francis is a fascinating story because, of course, Newman and Francis both were converted at the same time. The original conversion was to an evangelical or reformed version of Anglicanism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so they um, essentially became evangelical Anglicans. And so they were both Bible, strict Bible um, people who accepted the Thirty-Nine Articles and this and that, and um, you know, and had essentially reformed um, opinions. Yeah. And so what happened, though, was that as, as, as Francis developed, he developed in an anti-dogmatic way because he never really had accepted the, princi- the dogmatic principle. He'd, all he'd accepted really was um, private judgment in terms of his own reading of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so as he went on in his life, he, um, you know, eventually he became Plymouth Brethren, yeah. and moved away from the Anglicans, and then he, then he ended up as a, essentially as a Unitarian um, but the reason the reason was is that he never really had accepted the dogmatic principle. He'd always assumed that that it really just was based upon his own reading of scripture. Hmm. So in that way, in that way, one's doctrine always remain one's best opinion, um, and doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily relate to ontological truth, as you were saying earlier. It's 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 a step removed from it. You you can't um, when you're talking about uh, dogma, you're talking about uh, authentic uh, teaching. You're talking about reality. You're not talking about opinion. No, that's true. And then, of course, for Francis, he the the question is um, uh, to some degree has to do with um, receptivity in the sense that whether one accepts the church's mediation or the mediation. Um, Francis had began by accepting the mediation of the Bible, but the Bible, of course, has to have an interpreter. That's right. 
And yeah. so, yeah. and so the interpreter for Francis was um, was Francis himself. Yeah. And then then Francis's friends, but but as Francis pressed his friends, um, his Plymouth Brethren friends, he he found that their answers were not um, not rigorous. Mm-hmm. And so he then he then broke with them. It's it is fascinating. And Newman, you know, Francis was a serious mind, and so Newman's Apologia Pro Vita Sua is comparable to Francis's earlier book. Um, phases of faith, where Francis sort of details his own passage oh. um, in life, a way out of out of Christian faith. Wow, that mm-hmm. that must have been difficult for uh, John Henry Newman to, to watch. I think it was. I mean, they they remained, um, you know, they remained brothers and and many good, you know, many positive. Uh, they they kept up a contact. They they both had very long lives. In fact, Francis out, outlived um, John Henry. Hmm. But so they. But it was difficult, and it was um, especially difficult because Francis was a genius. He he was by no means as as skilled and beautiful a writer as as um, John Henry Newman. Mm-hmm. But he was a very influential man in England of his time, and he was um, a, a genius. Can one identify in one's own generation what might be an authentic development of doctrine? Well, New- Newman tends to not not think so. I mean, at least as far as I as far as I can remember, mm-hmm. you know, Newman thinks that that the um, the purpose of the of of um, doctrinal development is to is essentially to receive and then to understand how it is that the church got got from from there to here rather than rather than um seeing a development of doctrine as something um that you know you and I sit down together and and say we're going to develop some doctrine yeah, <laughs> right you know what i mean right, right. yeah in other words the church the de- doctrine develops organically it develops from from the whole church from the heart of the church um rather than um you know people sitting down in a committee and and um and kind of saying we're going to do this or that yeah. kind of thing. Well, I mean, right now we're looking at uh, what I, uh, chaos, or at least controversy, mm-hmm. in Germany, um, where the German bishops uh, seem to be committed to uh, a certain understanding of uh, sexuality. Um in in a situation like this, what role does the Pope play? Well, the the Pope, um, you know, would play. Um, you know, the, the that that's a that's a good question. The the Pope, uh, by by no means would I would I want to sort of determine what what role a Pope would play. But one mm-hmm. would assume that the Pope would. Um, you know, one would assume that the Pope would would call the. Um, you know, call the bishops of Germany. Um, you know, back into the into the the truth of the gospel. Yeah. You know, yeah. so this would be the thing. But of course, you have had many instances over the centuries in which bishops of different countries have sort of gotten out of hand. Yes. So, um, yeah. of course, all all the all the English bishops, other than Saint John Fisher, uh, just simply up and left, <laughs> as a, you as you know. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, yeah. those so are amazing can, truths. Uh, so, when you when we've got um, when we look over the history of the church, let me refer, let me move in a different direction here. When we look over the history of the church, it's remarkable to me, 
that we see so few challenges to papal infallibility, or at least I'm not aware of a boatload of challenges. Um, mm -hmm. Is, is it really that is it really that clean? I guess is what I'm asking. Uh, I mean, two thousand years for heaven's sake! <laughs> you would think there'd be lots of places where you'd say, "Well, that, he got it wrong there," but we we don't see that. No, that's that's right. We we don't. And now now in, in part, of course, that it, it does depend on it depends upon the fact that we have Catholic faith. And so we we see with the eyes of faith. Yes, yes. You know now now admittedly if we were if we were Protestants we we would um, you know so Luther and his uh, and Calvin and so on you know saw thought they thought they saw a number of instances That's right. where the church had got it wrong and including the including of course very much very much the Pope. Yeah, yeah. But but um, yeah so we do we do see with the eyes of faith and um, but we but we can see the coherence of the faith and the depth of the faith. And we can see its rootedness in Scripture and the Fathers, and mm -hmm. um, the power of the faith. And we see the we see the consistency and richness of the, of the Catholic teaching. Yeah, it is it is wonderful, remarkable. And uh, Matthew, thank you for taking the time to be with me today. And uh, I hope we'll have plenty of time to talk in the future. Wonderful, thank you, Al. Dr. Matthew Levering, this is a remarkable book, Newman on Doctrinal Corruption. Kind of case, five case studies. Uh, again, remarkable. I'm Al Crystal. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non for profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. The following program is brought to you in part by MyCatholicWill.com. Surveys show that more than half of Americans do not have a will. At MyCatholicWill.com, it takes as little as 15 minutes to write your will and secure a legacy of faith. MyCatholicWill.com is the exclusive online destination for creating a Catholic will. The process of writing a will is simple and now more accessible than ever. MyCatholicWill.com, a legacy of faith for those you love. He was a Jesuit, a cardinal, and a doctor of the church. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Robert Bellarmine is honored for his immense contributions to theology, including helping to draft two important catechisms that defended church teachings during the Protestant Revolt. Pope Clement VIII named Bellarmine a cardinal because, as the Pope put it, Bellarmine had not his equal for learning. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Thank you. 
Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I want to give congratulations to our friends at Siouxland Catholic Radio, 88.1 FM, serving Sioux City and Storm Lake, Iowa. 16 years of faithful service with us. And congratulations in particular to Anne and Lisa and the great team they put together at Siouxland Catholic Radio. Uh, from all your friends here at EWTN, and uh, I should also point out that Register Radio is on Saturdays at 4 Eastern and Sundays at 11 on EWTN Radio. you got Jeanette DeMillo there. you got Matthew Bunsen shining the truth of the gospel on the events of the day. Uh, we don't mention Register Radio often enough, so I'm stepping in there and giving him some uh, punch. Thank you. You can follow up on our topics today by going to AveMariaRadio.net. The books we discussed, Matthew Levering's book on Newman, on doctrinal corruption, available in the online bookstore. And, of course, we'll have follow-up information in the Cresta Guest Archives. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.